Good evening. My name is Ethan Olszewski. Uh, I'm a lecturer in the Department of Economics here at LSE. Welcome to the uh, London School of Economics. Today, um, our discussion will be titled The Economist as Philosopher, Adam Smith and John Maynard Keynes on Human Nature, Social Progress, and Economic Change. Um, we for are fortunate to have two um, economist philosopher historians with us to uh, discuss this uh, um, historical but uh, timely topic. Um, the, the names Adam Smith, uh, John Maynard Keynes, maybe also Friedrich Hayek have, are now reappearing on blogs and uh, articles everywhere, more as uh, slogans and uh, insults. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but the speakers today um, actually have much knowledge on uh, these um, historical uh, thinkers. Um, Lord Robert Skidelsky is Emeritus Professor of Political, Economic, uh, Political Economy at the University of Warwick. Um, he is a lifetime peer since 1991, a member of the British Academy since 1994, um, he's on the board of director of numerous financial and non-financial uh, uh, companies, recipient of uh, numerous awards, um, including the uh, Lionel Gerber Prize for International Relations and the Council on Foreign Relations Prize for International Relations. He is author of numerous academic articles and a long list of books, um, perhaps most famously a three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes. Uh, his most recent book, Keynes, The Return of the Master, is an outstanding account of the current economic crisis, uh, the intellectual and ideological uh, bifurcation that it exposed, and the relevance of Keynes' ideas and understanding recent events. This book is available for purchase uh, up front, and uh, uh, you should purchase it quickly because uh, there are less books than uh, people here in the audience. <laughs> um, Nicholas uh, Philipson is an honorary fellow at the, uh, in history at the University of Edinburgh and in recent years a visiting scholar at numerous uh, universities in the United States, Germany, and elsewhere. Um, he is editor of the New Oxford Dictionary of uh, National Biography, uh, um, founding editor of the journal Modern Intellectual History, um, president and former president of numerous uh, societies. Um, he is one of the prominent scholars on the Scottish Enlightenment and uh, uh, the uh, intellectual, uh, the, the, the thought, the um, political economy thought of the uh, 18th century. Um, his Many books include um, uh, a book on uh, uh, David, the thought and life of David Hume, and most recently, um, Adam Smith, An Enlightened Life, uh, which is also available for purchase, uh, so rush to get that as well. Um, uh, that this, the, the book, Adam Smith, An Enlightened Life, is a uh, um, very, interesting, very well-written biography of Adam Smith, which is not an easy um, historical thing to do because, as you may not know, but Adam Smith was a very private individual um, and 
left behind, uh, actually destroyed many of his manuscripts, so this required much historical archival work. Um, so I will, uh, the format will be, um, we'll have short presentations by both of the uh, professors. Um, we'll then have a discussion, um, and finally we'll allow some questions from the audience. I should note that this session is being recorded, uh, so um, in your questions, please be uh, polite, uh, clear, and speak to the microphone. Um, thank you. Uh, Nicholas Philipson, please. Well, thank you very much, and uh, welcome everyone to this uh, conversation. Um, before I begin, um, uh, I am not in any sense of the word an economist, and I would not want to um, give, give rise to disappointment by anyone thinking that I spoke with any authority as an economist. Um, what we wanted to do um, this evening was really to carry on um, a conversation about Adam Smith and Maynard Keynes that Robert and I began um, a couple of years or so, or, or so ago um, as an Edinburgh festival. Uh, and when I myself was um, in the middle of, um, of trying to get my book on Adam Smith or, 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 uh, or, or off the ground. And we began by um, contrasting our two, um, our two economists contrasting the personalities of the two economists, because they really were, on all, on all ordinary calculations of personality, very different people indeed. Smith, reclusive um, and diffident, um, eccentric, and in fact a mother's boy. Um, he lived most of his life with his mother, and he died shortly after she did. Um, as an intellectual, um, he was a slow worker, a slow thinker. He paced his thinking slowly. And his most startling characteristic, I think, was in his handling of the evidences of human behavior and economic behavior, was immediately to think about particulars in systemic terms. He, is, uh, he was known at his t in his time and has remained known um, as a systematizer. And it, all of this is a striking contrast uh, with um, Maynard Keynes. Maynard Keynes is a much more upfront person with an equally formidable mother, actually, um, a much more sociable person than Smith, um, a formidable person uh, socially, unlike the rather retiring Smith, um, a libertine uh, in many aspects of his life, um, and as an intellectual, um, a, a much more pragmatic thinker, I would say, than Smith, a man who was interested um, in theorizing the implications of specific events, and, uh, and, to do, and doing so I, in, 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 with more iconoclasm than Smith would ever have dreamt of seeing. And we started off by um, realizing that these two people, perhaps the greatest economists, um, the most powerful economic thinkers um, uh, of the modern world, um, did seem to stand in contrast with each other. But when one went into it, it was quite clear that these differences notwithstanding these two men have really very, very striking characteristics in common. 
certainly as far as their uh, as their mental as their their intellectual uh, pro uh, profile, their intellectual uh, apparatus um, is concerned. They were, of course, both. Um, more than competent mathematicians. They were serious mathematicians. But that, in fact, I think is something one would expect uh, with people who were dealing with economic data. Much more surprising, they both had serious interests in aesthetics and, indeed, in the performing arts. And, indeed, one of the things that I, not even serious Smith scholars fully enough realise is that um, just after finishing The Wealth of Nations... Smith sat down to begin a book on aesthetics. Um, it, um, and although all that has survived of this is um, about 8,000 words have survived in forms of draft lectures, um, if my, uh, in my judgment, there are the makings of a very, very interesting and possibly revolutionary um, aesthetic theory built into them. But the thing, but, but these, these things, by the way, and we can talk about these things later if, if, if you would like, but the important thing was their interest in philosophy. In philosophy as a discipline uh, which addresses itself to what in the 18th century people called the principles of human nature. Philosophy in the sense that moral philosophy is concerned with ethics and with questions about the ends of life in civil society, about the attainment of happiness, about even the principles of virtue. They're interested in philosophy too, um, for what philosophy can help you say um, about scientific explanation about the formulation of laws and general principles about human conduct and the operations of civil society. And I think we came to very much to the conclusion that it was wrong to think of these as shared, let us call them uh, for the sake of ease, philosophical interests, which are simply part of the lumber of undergraduate education. I mean, that would be an obvious strategy uh, 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 to take when one was discussing philosophy and economics with our two people. But it, we, we both came to the conclusion, and we may say something more about this later, that you can't write these interests off, as I say, as part of, uh, uh, as, uh, as one of the chapters in the history of their early education. These interests and these different levels of interest we found were constant throughout their lives um, as, uh, um, as intellectuals. Um, they're woven in, in some way, which we, I think we rather want to talk about here, they're woven into the fabric in some way which we must try and define a bit more precisely of their economic thinking. Um, and um, it, all of this raised in us the further question was what is the role in creative economic thinking of philosophy? Philosophy in its different branches. Is it, are we dealing with um, a rather curious pair of biographical examples of powerful economic thinkers who happened to, um, uh, 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 to, to, to have an interest in these different layers of philosophy? Or is there something 
more, uh, more going on. Are we talking about the character of creative economic thinking in general, whether or not it applies simply to these two people or applies further afield? And we, we rather wanted to, um, uh, to try and open that subject up and, um, um, and, and later on to, uh, for you to help us uh, with your own thoughts on these thinking, uh, on these problems. So what we thought we would do um, was that we should, start, we should start off this discussion by having a look at the introduction of Keynes and of, um, of Adam Smith to the business of philosophy. Um, at just to get a fix on just where they come from um, as people with powerful and continuing interests in philosophy. And um, we, will, we will then take it from there um, and see where we get to. Robert, I think that's all. I, is that all I need to say at the moment? Uh, 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 things for you to add to that? Because I think you were going to start off with Keynes. Keynes. Um, well, I was going to start off with the Archbishop of Canterbury, actually. Oh, much better, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you want to go on? I mean, I mean all right, I'll, no, I'll say a few on words. On it's your turn. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think um, uh, the two, two men, Adam Smith and Keynes, uh, men of Keynes, form a, 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 a fascinating biographical contrast. <laughs> Um, uh, I, and I think one couple of things that emerged I mean one was uh, the hedgehog and the fox analogy which of course um, I think uh, Hayek applied to himself um, but um, I think in, in, in this pairing uh, maybe Smith is the hedgehog and, and Maynard Keynes is the fox seeing one, one big thing and the other person others seeing a lot of small things, but sort of very, very quickly. I mean, I think Keynes also actually saw one big thing. The other thing was the huge range of these two people, which I think has been lost today. It's before the age of specialization, after all. And, and, and the idea of a well-educated economist was someone who was just well-educated. Um, economics was something he did, or she did. Uh, usually it was he in the earlier period. Um, but but it was it, you know it was set in um, 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 a much a much a much broader uh, intellectual and cultural framework, and I think both of them had an omnivorous curiosity. I mean they just got interested in everything, and of course, being the, the people they were, they liked to spin a theory out of it. Um, and uh, I mean Smith, uh, Smith, Adam Smith used his conjectural history as as a technique for doing this. Um, but you know, they wanted to get to understand how things had become what they were, um, and and so it was the reverse of um, um, today's um, disciplines, uh, which are very very narrow. And um, people will say, I was uh, doing a TV uh, thing the other day, and there was a professor of government, and we were meant we were talking about professor of government at Oxford, and we were talking about a subject which had economic and also um, political aspects to it. And he said, well, I'm afraid we've reached the frontiers of my subject. I, I'm not going to say anything about that. But I mean, this, this is, you know, I, I was appalled, quite frankly. Um, uh, I've never thought frontiers were a particular barrier um, <laughs> to the way my mind works. And, and, and no doubt I make lots of mistakes in consequence. But now going back to the archbishop. Um, 
in a recent essay, he um, called for a proper discussion of what wealth is for. Uh, why is growth seen as the holy grail? Um, economics, uh, he, sa he says, claims to have unearthed a particular theory of mo law of motivation which trumps everything else, um, that of self-interest. Um, rational self-interest in underlies Adam Smith's invisible hand, but economic exchange, and then I'm quoting the Archbishop, is only one of the things that people do. And that's, that's a very important phrase that, that he uses, only one of the things that people do. And then he says, why, why are we here? And he says, it's to lead good and admirable lives. And the quest for wealth has only a limited connection um, with that. Moreover, maximization of wealth also calls for qualities which are the reverse of what is needed for goodness. Um, so we must recover the courage to speak about these things, to speak about wealth and the pursuit of wealth in a moral and ethical framework. Now, both Smith and Keynes did that. I mean, with Smith, um, uh, for him, economic life wasn't just one of the things we do. It was the main thing we do. And it's the main thing we do because of the universal con condition of scarcity what he called indigence. And so basically self-interest was, was something that was prime because it um, helped us solve this problem of, of self-interest. It wasn't just self-interest, there was also uh, what he called sympathy. But indigence and necessity are the spur for improvement. Saving uh, or parsimony comes to us from the womb. I don't know whether that's a, a you quote or a Smith quote. Um, no, it's in your book. It's not me. I it's wish, not you. I wish it was. <laughs> Parsimony comes from the womb. Self-interest is the motor of improvement, and it produces private property, which is the basis of the accumulation of capital and, 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 and the division of labor. But it also, um, but, but it also um, uh, produces other things. Commerce and the arts of exchange um, uh, come out of the quest uh, for, for, for wealth. Um, they, um, uh, they, they make men sociable and sociability is the basis of morality. Anyway, so you get this base superstructure sort of idea in Smith with, 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 with self-interest uh, as, 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 as at the base, as, 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 as necessary um, to, to um, get people out of poverty. Thus, the progress, progress in civilization depends on progress in opulence. Opulence is produced by self-interest mediated by sympathy. Self-interest is innate, but sympathy is learned um, from, from the experience of, of, of living with other people. Now, interestingly, Smith didn't tell us what he thought life would be like um, after um, opulence was reached. I think he probably did have his utopia. But he did believe that it was the material progress of mankind which created intellectual and aesthetic appetites. So we must assume that Smith thought that one day economic life would simply become one of the things we do. As, as the Archbishop um, said, but it hadn't yet, that stage hadn't yet arrived, been reached. Now to Keynes, and I just want to take one strand of Keynes here, which is something I've been thinking about and working about recently, and that's his economic, little essay, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. 
Keynes did speculate on what life would or should be um, when we had reached a state of abundance. And he thought we were very close to it. This was written in 1930. His premise was that capital growth and improvements in technology were putting us within sight of solving the economic problem, at least in the West. A standard of living eight times as high as in 1930 would be achievable within a hundred years with a fraction of the effort, with the fraction of the hours that people then worked. Most work, in other words, would be done by machines. Um, and so we would soon be in a position to abandon the morality um, born of scarcity. In other words, Smith's morality. With the economic problem solved, the grad grinds of the world um, will yield their places, and I quote Keynes, to the delightful people who are capable of taking direct enjoyment in things, the lilies of the field who toil not, neither do they spin. And significantly, Keynes said that once this point had been reached, we would be free to adopt the sure and certain principles of religion and traditional virtue. In other words, self-interest would be irrelevant at that point. In an era of abundance, like justice, self-interest would no longer make sense. And so the whole basis of our institutions would, would, would have to be transformed and we would all suffer a nervous breakdown, um, that, you know, society as a whole. Now, in, in, in a sense, you might say, well, Keynes was simply following on from Adam Smith and he was 150 years later and, and, and the world had just become much more opulent than it was in Adam Smith's day. But there was one enormous difference from, from Adam Smith. Um, Keynes did not see capitalism as benign, only as necessary. He was much more influenced by Mandeville and his fable of the bees. Uh, Mandeville's account of capitalism as um, a system which hypocritically turned vices into virtues. Um, and he had little, um, little sympathy for Adam Smith's attempt to soften self-interest by the notion of, 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 of sympathy. Um, he would have agreed with Smith's contemporary Thomas Reed, who called Smith's philosophy of sympathy a delusive device for wrapping up selfishness in impartiality. Um, so for Keynes, capitalism's only redeeming feature was that it got us to abundance. And for that, we had to pay a very heavy price. And I just want to end uh, here with, with a quotation from um, the um, economic prosperities of our grandchildren, which do show Keynes in his full flow and, and, and also reveal uh, a great deal of the eloquence of his writing. When we get to the state of abundance, we shall be able to rid ourselves of many of the pseudo-moral principles which have hag-ridden us. I'm sorry, there's political incorrectness. Hag-ridden us. By which we have exalted some of the most distasteful of human qualities into the highest virtues. We shall be able to uh, assess the money motive at its true value. The love of money as a possession as distinguished from the love of money as a means to the enjoyment and realities of life, will be recognized for what it is, a somewhat disgusting morbidity, one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological tendencies which one hands over with a shudder to specialists in mental disease. <laughs> but that's when we've, we've solved the problem. But beware, the time for all this is not yet 
For at least another hundred years, we must pretend that fair is foul and foul is fair, for foul is useful and fair is not. Avarice and usury and precaution must be our gods for a little longer, for only they can lead us out of the tunnel of necessity into daylight. So that's Keynes on capitalism, the function of capitalism. In, in Now, the Archbishop Smith, Keynes, agree that wealth is simply a means to a good life and that its pursuit should cease after abundance has been reached. We're left with the question, how much wealth uh, do we need to live, live wisely, agreeably, and well? How much wealth will suffice to get us off the growth treadmill? And to answer that, an economist needs to become a philosopher, and economics a philosophical as well as a mathematical project. Yes, I mean, the contrast of, between Keynes as the economist of, um, of abundance who can actually begin to theorize, think it worth theorizing, the consequences of abundance, um, is the basis, I think, of a, of a really very, very interesting um, uh, contrast with Smith. Um, Smith is not dealing with a world in which, which uh, wh whose productive resources can be described in terms of abundance. Smith is um, uh, seen historically is the um, the philosopher and the economist who is confronted with a world um, whose dominant form of civilization. Um, feudalism is crumbling in, and it is crumbling for reasons that have relatively little to do with the intervention of princes, politicians uh, uh, purpose of human action um, it is crumbling because of a, a, um, a, a change in behaviour which it is extremely important for the 18th century that they should understand. And the point about, uh, the, uh, the reason for making this point is that Smith is the philosopher, the economist of improvement. He never ever talks about the consequences of abundance. He is talking about the consequences of a structural change, an epochal change. Um, in the history of civilization, which has as its roots a shift that is taking a, a profound shift that is taking place in the productive capacities and resources of the world he's living in. Now, this means um, what um, it's worth making this point and it's worth emphasizing this point because this, in fact, did not come over within a generation of Smith dying. What is fascinating. Um, and it is starting to happen to Keynes now, I, um, um, is the speed with which classic texts of this sort, which are written to explain particular phenomena and to try and derive a set of principles which will explain these phenomena, um, um, uh, um, do become, they become detached from the historical circumstances which the philosopher is trying to explain and they become read in terms of what are seen to be their implication and therefore Smith's science becomes a dismal science um, a, a dismal science which in fact a, a, a neo-Mandevillian science in fact 
Now, the interesting thing is, although I mean I won't go into this here, that one of the great targets of Smithian economics, it's one of the presences that he could never ever forget is the presence of Mandeville and that deeply cynical, enormously powerful, and hilariously funny, after all, um, account uh, uh, of the workings of a, uh, um, um, of a productive economy in which people foolishly believe they are living in a state of abundance. Uh, but the cynicism, the brilliance and the cynicism of that toast to naked self-interest um, and the forms of morality and the delusions um, about truth, about beauty, um, about morality above all, um, in which these um, um, uh, um, uh, 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 have been brought into existence um, by, uh, 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 by changes in the market. Now, Smith is very, very anxious. And one of the major intentions of Smith as a philosopher and then as a jurist, because he is an, a jurist of, of great power and latterly of a political economist, is to face that particular challenge. Um, and again, he has to do it in the same way um, uh, of, uh, uh, to deal with a different tack on the same problem. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, one of the most powerful and creative um, uh, philosophers and social theorists of the later Enlightenment, um, who in the second discourse um, uh, will in fact present human beings as becoming separated from themselves by the progress of civilization and the progress of commerce. So people become unrecognizable to themselves. Now this prospect, the fear that, um, that, uh, uh, that, that, that commercial, beha commercial behavior will do, that it will make people unrecognizable to themselves um, and, that, um, uh, uh, and that they will be gulled and cheated into, um, um, into delusions about the ethical value of what they're doing. This is a, this is a recurring target um, for Smith. And I think it's very interesting at this stage in our discussion to bear in mind that when Smith was once asked you know, where we were all heading, um, he did in fact, he, he was absolutely clear that um, he was not thinking in utopian terms at all. He was only thinking in terms of the immediate consequences of the processes of economic change that he saw in, at work in Europe and in fact in the empire, the growing empire around him. Um, and he was very, very careful not to move further than that. His disciples, the first generation of disciples, they certainly do, they move beyond that very quickly. And so does the first generation of his critics. But again, this is one of the fascinating problems that historians have to, to cope with. The fate of texts, when they're read by their first editors who wish to bring them up to date to make them relevant to a different sort of age. Um, uh, it may be that this, it's the fate of every great text that it should be treated in this way. Can I make a, just a point about method here? I mean, mm. I, think, I think people did science in a different way. I mean, um, I, I think a lot of... A lot of um, I, I, Smith wasn't, it, he didn't use induction as, as a way of coming to his, to his conclusions, but, but he wasn't, it wasn't entirely deductive either. I mean, in other words, the examples were, were, were regarded as sort of part of the argument. I mean, whereas now um, uh, economics has become, economic theory has become purely deductive. I mean, you start with a set of axioms. They're not de obviously derived from anything, certainly not from observation 
Um, uh, they're just there. And then various attempts are meant to sort of prove them or disprove them. Um, um, and, and, uh, but uh, but there is no there's very little empirical element in the creation of economic truth today, whereas there was a huge amount of that. And that is why, I mean, you know, I mean, so much, I and mean, it's brought out brilliantly in your book, um, Smith's um, observations on, of human nature um, were derived um, very much from observation um, of, of his own milieu, and particularly the milieu of Glasgow and, and Scotland in the 18th century. And then he used a lot of conjectural history I mean, which was based on real history. I mean, it was based on encyclopedic knowledge of other civilizations and climes in order to get a general truth. Um, now, we don't, I mean, we don't do that today. We don't do our science. I would say that um, what economics suffers from is a surfeit of physics envy. It, it, it wants to be a natural science. Um, and therefore, it wants to be in a position to, um, to, to proclaim truths universal, universally valid, independent of time and space, which is what you know, um, it believes, uh, the laws that believe apply to natural phenomena. And as a result, all that sort of side of Smith, which was curiosity about what was going on about different societies, different cultures, how they arranged their institutions differently, and so all that sort of dropped away. And I think you already have this shift um, from Smith, uh, from Smithian science to, to modern economics in, in, in Ricardo. Um, I mean, that's really where it starts. And, and then, of course, um, uh, mathematics gets more and more powerful, and mathematics replaces history as the core, and, and philosophy as well, as the core of the economics project. So I think that's point one. I think then going back to this very interesting contrast between scarcity and abundance, the whole of classical economics was based on the idea of scarcity. I mean, that was its central root. All the logic mm -hmm. flowed from that. And, 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 and therefore, the, and the idea of abundance sort of never occurred. And it's interesting how, and, and, and Keynes, what Keynes did was to say, well, let's think about, not just in terms of utopia, but let's, let's talk about um, a surplus of resources at various points rather than a scarcity of them. What sort of economics do you get out of that? And I mean, you got out of that, you got the general theory, as a matter of fact. Um, but um, what's happened today is that we've reverted to scarcity economics. I mean, Osborne is a classic scarcity economist. We don't have enough money to do these things. The fact that there is a rather large <coughs> surplus of unused resources um, is, is not something, a thought that I think ever occurs to him. Or, or if it does, they're not really surplus in some way. <coughs> We are at full employment, actually, in some way, and therefore we're in a world of scarcity. So you have this sort of break in economics, and, and now I think the dominant mood is austerity, scarcity, prudence, saving, back to the womb of saving, and, uh, and out of this we will scramble out of the hole which extravagance has brought us into. <clears throat> Yes, I, I, I mean, the, it, we, we come back again to the um, really fascinating question, is, is what sort of laws, if any, uh, can be derived? And the thing is, that it's, it's one thing to say um, that there are no laws um, relating to the human sciences that, can be, uh, that will conform to um, a standard definition of what a law is. 
Um, but that doesn't actually solve the problem because it, it raises the question of what sort of systematic thinking is A, illuminating and B, useful. And I think one of the things, uh, one of the things I've uh, come to realize about Adam Smith relatively recently, actually, is just how far his um, account of economic behavior, his economics, uh, um, is rooted in a much wider um, enlightenment preoccupation with is it possible to derive a science of man, a science of human behavior in all its aspects, moral, political, aesthetic, religious? And if so, what sort of science is it? And this is one of the great, great projects of the Enlightenment. Um, and many ways, one of its roots uh, is in Thomas Hobbes. It's Hobbes who does something that matters hugely to the Scots and matters hugely to Adam Smith. And that is to suggest that you cannot apply the laws of um, experimentation and uh, hypothesis and conclusion um, to the, uh, 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 that you would apply to the uh, natural sciences, to the human sciences. The problem of creating a science of a species to which you are belong, to which you belong, and which you are trying to observe, requires a completely different sort of discipline. And it was Hobbes who did something that I don't think has been widely enough appreciated by um, scholars of the Enlightenment um, to suggest that actually the key is, um, is uh, lies in the discipline of, of geometry and Euclidean geometry particularly proceeding, as, as, as Robert was saying, um, by hypotheses and then um, uh, developing by means of illustration of hypotheses or axioms uh, which have the purpose of giving, of increasing the truth value in rhetorical terms at least uh, of, the, of the proposition you're, you're proceeding from. Now that is um, the interesting thing and I think there's a lot more to be found out about this is precisely what sort of discipline this is. What sort of science is it? And this of course was the challenge that Smith's successors faced. They refused to accept that this was anything more than offering plausible hypotheses. I mean, one of, uh, uh, one of the, the Smith's uh, 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 um, formidably and terrifyingly bright uh, um, uh, students in the early 19th century was so patronizing about Smith, it simply wasn't true. Um, he simply said, you know, this is terribly elegant, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful hypothesis, it'll do for the vulgar, but it's not nearly good enough for an age in which we expect to be able to formulate laws about the workings of the market and laws about, about politics. And I think what Smith's project does is it raises the question of what sort of science um, is, is it that he is pursuing? Because it is certainly not, as Robert was saying, anything doesn't begin to resemble any, any, the, the sort of science um, which we would recognize. Um, and indeed, Smith himself was extremely cautious um, I mean, it's one of the reasons he's cautious about any form of prediction. 
Um, uh, and it, it raises the question of what then does this sort of en enterprise do? And in my view, what Smith does, and this brings him, I, I suspect, close to Keynes, is to say the most you can do is you can formulate hypotheses which will appeal to the truth sense of a target audience, in his case, an audience of politicians, of effectively 18th century civil servants, um, and, will, um, and will in fact be taken as a useful way of thinking about policy options in a situation in which the economy is moving in ways that no one had anticipated, um, which has no history behind it uh, um, as a guide, um, and um, what is being offered is um, a way of discussing particular policy problems mm. within uh, the framework of a general hypothesis which it's open for governors to accept or reject. I think that's very important. It, 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 it raises um, very the, the, the crucial question of how one does a subject like economics. Keynes was uh, a great believer in using ordinary language. I mean, that was a philosophical <laughs> commitment as well. He, he used what I'd call highbrow ordinary language. Um, he used very little maths. Um, he was a good mathematician, and he was a very, but he didn't use maths. And he, rather like Alfred Marshall, his teacher, he believed math should be for the appendices, and you know anyone who wanted to. But he believed very, very strongly that you should understand everything in um, English or the language uh, that, of, of the country before you wrote down a single equation. You should know exactly what you were trying, what what it meant in language. Then, you, if you wanted to make it more precise or, or, or develop it in an, in, in an interesting way, you, you you could do that. And that convention really lasted um, right through the cl the classic economics period. But it sort of it started to disappear with Ricardo. I mean, if you read Ricardo's Principles, um, which of course you've all done. Um, you, will, you will notice that it's crying out to be mathematicized, really. Um, uh, but, but whether it was because they didn't have the maths to do it, uh, uh, Ricardo didn't have the maths to do it, or, or, or because he, he also believed in, 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 in the need to communicate um, with, 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 um, with, with other people, uh, I don't know. But the, the, the mathem mathem mathematization of economics really started with the marginalist revolution in the 1870s and, 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 and the doctrines of subjective utility and then calculus became central to, to um, the, 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 the economics maths that, that you all now, those who do economics now, now all know about. But this idea of, of ordinary language mm. is, is, is that Economics is a sort of rhetorical discipline in, in the view of Smith and indeed of Keynes. It must appeal to some intuition in, 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 your, in, your, in, your, in your audience, in your target audience. That's what gave it its truth, truth value. Um, and now you have such a disconnect between um, 
economics and, and the intuitions of ordinary people. Not, not a complete disconnect. I mean, I think there, there, there are strong connections. I mean, someone like, um, you know, Osborne does connect in some way with certain very powerful intuitions, which is that the government is like a household. Let's think about a household. Let's think about a household economy. And, and you, you know, there's, there's, there's a great deal of, of, of that. But it's, it, the whole way of presentation is remote. Um, from from um, the way people think about uh, business life, and also the um, the 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 um, uh, sort of figure set up, which is Homo economicus, economic man, driven entirely by self-interest um, and maximising his utilities, um, um, is is something not most people don't recognise in themselves. And if you actually try to, if you actually say that is actually what you're like. Uh, that's, if you don't know it, you, you know you better do an economics course. Then you'll realise exactly what you are like. I mean, they they don't recognise themselves in that. And what's more, a lot of behavioural uh, economics now uh, has also challenged that view. And in, in but but yet, without that sort of view, you don't have anything very very hard. And and that's that's why that's why classical new classical economics fear behavioural economics because it sort of opens up the whole story of human nature in a way that was closed down yeah. by the scarcity perspective and the self-interest, that sort of uh, uh, um, threat that comes out, I think comes out of Adam Smith. You see, I mean, I, I, I do love Adam Smith in a way, but I do think he, there were certain things he didn't do quite right. Um, <laughs> I, I think his view. I mean, to what extent was his view of human nature actually formed by the the, the milieu in which he in which he grew up? Kirkcaldy, then Glasgow, then you know the the, the, the merchant elites of, of of Scotland in the 18th century. Did he century? get it from his mother? Or did he get? I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, was. So, um, and his own personality, as you say, rather reclusive, self-sufficient, never married, no family, no, no children. I mean, uh, well, th 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 this is this is this is, this is, this is psychobiography. Um, ah, yeah. Well. And um, psychobiography is one of the most delicious uh, party pastimes um, that one can engage in because everyone can have a go at it. There is absolutely no way whether one uh, you can know whether you're talking nonsense or not. But it is absolutely irresistible, and you should you should try it some at some stage. Um, but um, what made Adam Smith tick? Um, is something um, I'm afraid I've uh, 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 if anyone reads my book in, in the hope that I will give them some insight into what made Adam Smith tick and whether he was dropped on his head or not as a child and the, the, the influence of his dreaded mother um, um, I'm afraid they will be disappointed because I just uh, um, um, there was just no way in which one could get into that but what you can get into is Smith's enormous sensitivity to the language in which ordinary human beings discussed, let's say, to, to start with, the question of moral judgment. You know, when we, if, if we see something going on, if I'm talking to, to, to one of you, and you know, we, we, we see something going on over there which is rather strange, we automatically find ourselves passing judgments or offering judgments, which we may correct and all the rest of it. We're judgmental people. Um, and what Smith does is he appeals to the ordinary business of exchange, of social exchange. 
uh, the exchange of ideas, of sentiments, uh, in whatever form they take. Um, and the thing is that the examples he gives are quite deliberately fashioned to be examples which people will recognize. They, 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 they crop up in books. They're, they're part of or, the ordinary discourse um, about morality, about economic behavior, and so forth. And the, um, the, the intention of this is entirely inclusive, it seems to me. What Smith is, is, is not trying to do is to say that philosophy is out here and you are over there. He is trying to say, what, we are do what, what I am trying to do is to get you to attend to one or two aspects of your behavior which you will recognize from these examples. And what I want to do is to encourage you to just press the theoretical implications of what of, of the, this sort of observation of ordinary life and to press into it a bit further and Smith sometimes does it and he's criticized for it by pressing so far into these that people begin to think well you know this is this is a, 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 a bordering on implausibility but that intention is a common characteristic of his, his methods of reasoning and I think what lies at the root of it is something that is well worth taking account of with Smith in whatever form one reads him and whatever text one reads. He is the great student of exchange. The, the, um, uh, the, the phenomenon of human exchange is the thing that matters. It's not self-interest, purely and simply. It is the process of exchange, which we all know, we all recognize, we all engage in it from the moment we're born to the moment where uh, we die. And he's interested in the consequences of that exchange for the formation of the personality, the civic personality, actually, because Smith really only seriously writes about people who live in civil societies. Mm. Um, and this is, uh, um, this is, I think, one of the engaging things about Smith. Um, um, you, if you can speak 18th century ease, and it's not at all that difficult, and you can get into the shell of Smith's original readers, and you can understand the ordinary conversational world that they live in, Smith is not a difficult philosopher. Um, the, he, uh, because, as I say, the intention is to appeal to your own experience. Um, the fact that we've got a, hist a historical gulf between them and us is something that can be perfectly well bridged um, by the business of learning a different language. I mean, you know, which uh, uh, a lot of us learn to do anyway. It's a language. It's a language problem. But the inclusivity of this and the uh, um, and Smith's determination to present economic behaviour as another aspect of the business of social exchange. It is, it is, it is central. It's, it's absolutely central. But it's also limited. Because Why? Well, because um, <laughs> you can start from a different premise, um, which is, uh, I know, uh, not think of people as individuals, but as say, start as members of commu uh, communities who feel bound um, to act in certain ways by, um, by ties of kinship or religion or, or whatever you may you take that as being central kinship. It's not clear that you move from self-interest to exchange. What are you exchanging? 
Um, you know, I mean, uh, well, in a sense, in a trivial sense, we're always exchange, we're exchanging ideas. I mean, presumably even in families, there's some conversation. But broadly speaking, <laughs> broadly speaking, you know, there are certain duties that people might feel they have as being, by virtue of being, uh, members of, 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 of a certain group. And that doesn't involve exchange, except in a trivial sense. When you, Where does it come from, then? Where does what? The sense of the, duty? The, the sense of duty. How, do, how, how, how does the small child learn a sense of duty? The small child learns a sense of duty by being born into that family and therefore so being, he's being presented. Hard so the, 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 no, the child no, is hardwired no, with he'd be, sense Being of duty. presented with, with, with certain uh, duties and obligations and rewards and punishments appropriate to that status, uh, his status in, in the family or the group. The family itself is not an independent unit. I mean, when Margaret Thatcher said there are no such, they're, they're only individuals and their families, you know, there's no such thing as society. Well, society is also a code word for community. But you can start from a different premise. And the fact is that the Chinese do start from a different premise, a different idea of human nature, a different idea of how, how individuals fit in to a structure, um, a different from Adam Smith. It seems to me, I don't know, uh, I may be wrong about this, that Adam Smith starts with the individual and then derives a whole lot of relationships from the inescapable um, sort of uh, 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 individualist premise. If you can't be an individual in isolation unless you're Robinson Crusoe. You live with other people. You, 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 you form um, ways of living with other people which involve exchanges. Uh, you, it's a reciprocal thing. But then there's another, uh, you know, you, it's where you start from, and he started in a particular place, and I think it's a very valuable place to start from. But it's not the only place you can, and it doesn't give you, it doesn't explain everything about human nature. Is it? I, I, I'm, I'm not actually sure quite how, how far we're disagreeing on, 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 on the Smithian take on this. I mean, you are absolutely right to say that we are born as single entities. I mean, one of the things that you know never gets published with the wealth of nations are uh, Smith's extraordinary remarks about the human species. We, we, are, we are thrown into the world as indigents. We, we belong to the, the most defenseless animal species there is. We have no natural strength. We have no, uh, we have no resources for natural protection. We die unless we learn to cooperate. And that is... Uh, and that, that, that image of need and necessity and where it leads, he talked about in his lectures to Glasgow students uh, in the 1750s and 60s, and you can follow them in his um, lectures on jurisprudence. And I think myself, one of the puzzles is why doesn't he put that in the wealth of nations when all his account of human behaviour stems from it? But he decided not to which is, uh, say, very interesting. But the point is, we are certainly born, but what does it mean to say we're born as individuals? Because one of the cardinal characteristics of Smith's theory of exchange is to raise the question of how do we get the sense, the feeling, that we are a distinct individual, a self. And his theory, absolutely, his moral theory, absolutely brilliantly shows how in the course of common life in the, uh, education, uh, as a result of education in the family uh, education in, in the community um, we acquire a sense of otherness 
and uh, which allows us to think of ourselves as having to negotiate a place within that other. And what is powerful about this is that Smith is able to take the idea of self-interest and self-love, that very, very powerful um, uh, image that every, um, uh, every conservative uh, 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 um, American uh, uh, economist will have of the just the, uh, the invincible individuality of, 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 of the rational human being. He actually said, well, actually, we owe our sense of selfhood to social experience. The self that is interested is actually, if you like, a social creation. Um, it's something we acquire in the course of time. Well, you see, I think, you, yeah. So well, that's the, uh, I agree. That's our, that's, our, that's our tradition. I think in some other traditions we acquire our sense of self by virtue of being born in, in a certain place, in a certain, yeah. in a certain uh, hierarchy. You, you made some very interesting point. Um, we, what, what, we, what we should understand is that we die unless we cooperate. Yeah. What about dying because we cooperate? Which has certainly yeah. been one of the many, you know, many, many very, very important experiences um, uh, often. Then, you see, negotiate our place in the family. Somehow, um, I don't think that's what happens. I don't think people do negotiate their place in the family. I think they're ascribed a place in the family. Sometimes uh, they, 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 they leave the family because they don't want that place. And you know, uh, the, the language of negotiation, I agree, it's a very common language and it's used a great deal. We negotiate our place in, in, in a society. It doesn't seem to be right. It's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit too m much sort of almost a market language being applied to relationships where um, the market language is inappropriate. And the market language is, of course, inappropriate because, I mean, you know, a, a fully competitive market, um, uh, people don't know each other at all. They, they negotiate purely um, in money terms. But, Robert, I think it's exactly the reverse of that. Uh, the, the language of exchange is something taken from moral philosophy and applied to the market as an economic phenomenon. It's, it's not the other way around. Um, it is not... Uh, um, it uh, is it, in modern economics. Ah, well, now, um, Where, uh, of course, I know no economics. No, 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 so no I you do know, know a great deal of economics. <laughs> but, you know, the imperialism of economics is a, is a well-attested and well-recognized fact. Every single thing that has been dealt with by other disciplines, other studies, is being is being taken over by economics and by the, the central economic paradigm, and it starts to explain everything. So you know, uh, maybe it started in a different way, and I think it did. I think economics was an aspect of philosophy. Now, philosophy is an aspect of economics. So I'd like to give uh, uh, the audience uh, a an opportunity to ask uh, some questions. Um, I'll. Uh, Please uh, ask questions. Don't make uh, speeches or pronouncements. Um, and um, we'll take questions uh, three three at a time. And uh, actually, I'll, I'll I'll kick off with a with a question. And uh, um, which, in what ways would you say the uh, thinkers you have written on are Misrepresented, or their ideas misrepresented in modern dis 
uh, discourse? Well, I don't know. Um, I think textbooks always misrepresent ideas. They leave out what's not essential to the immediate purposes of the textbook. In that all, all the thinkers' thoughts that have been somehow um, um, don't fit in to the main chain of, 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 of the textbook um, are, are basically eliminated. Say you get um, a, a, um, a version of Keynes that's taught, which is as, as made as compatible as possible with um, uh, the uh, uh, mainstream or dominant um, economic uh, macroeconomics, um, and all those bits that don't fit in, you simply don't know about. For example, um, people don't know um, uh, uh, that, that, that Keynes attached absolutely central um, importance to uncertainty and used it as an explanatory device for all kinds, all, 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 um, all decisions involving investment and future-looking um, decision-making. Uh, people don't know that. Um, and another way, I think, in which textbooks distort um, the thing is to um, have what they call alternative approaches. Having um, actually set out the truth, the true approach, there's then always sections on alternative approaches. I mean, our, our bow to liberal, liberal, liberalism and tolerance, but we're also um, taught quite firmly that we needn't spend too much time on the alternative approaches because they certainly won't necessarily get you a good degree and won't get you into the MBA program. Now, I mean, that, that, is, that is the way, that's the way it's done. Everyone knows it's done. Um, some teachers are, are, are much better than that, but I think that is actually how it works. So textbook approach is inevitably distorted. That's true, um, and I agree, I agree with all of that. Um, the other thing is to look at how much of letters, in my case, Smith is read. Smith is increasingly in textbooks reduced to books one and two of Wealth of Nations. Three, four, five in perhaps advanced classes. But when, when is his moral philosophy read? When is his jurisprudence read? Very seldom indeed. When is his aesthetics read? Never is the answer to that. Now, the, you might say, why does that matter? Isn't what really matters, isn't the legacy which we have to understand contained in book one's, books one and two of the Wealth of Nations? And the answer is, well, you, I see, you, know, you obviously see the point of that, but think of the language in which it's written. Um, not just simply the, 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 the dictionary meanings of the words, but the cultural meanings of the words, because Smith is a most careful user of language. There is nothing imprecise about Smith's language in 18th century terms. And that's what gets lost. So what you get is um, a, a Smith who has been imperceptibly translated into a language he had no knowledge of and couldn't have had any knowledge of. And that must mean that his, uh, things are attributed to him, like the notion of the self-interested individual, that were simply not, they did not represent what he was writing about. Now, how much that matters to modern economics, I leave that to economists to understand. But it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's not a real Smith, it's an iconic Smith. Um, was Keynes Smithian? 
not so much as an economist, but um, in terms of the philosophical influences. It's clear that there is a strong Malthusian influence on Keynes, and he talks about it himself. But uh, where would you see lines of continuity or of influence um, of Smith on Keynes? Not so much in economics, but rather uh, in terms of, let's say, the theory of moral sentiments and, uh, and these lines of influence. Well, one of Keynes's um, disadvantages or perhaps advantages is that he um, really read very little economics. Um, I, I, he never took an economics degree um, and I think his formal study of economics was confined to eight weeks um, of a, a Cambridge term. Now, um, that didn't mean he didn't uh, make up for a lot of it and he, you know, like many people in those days he was asked to teach the theory of money said, say he read some books on money monetary theory and then started his lectures. He didn't read Adam Smith till th any Adam Smith till three years after he had started teaching economics. Then he did read Adam Smith and he, he always had a lot, he always had a lot of respect for Adam Smith. I don't think he got his moral theory from Adam Smith um, I, I think that came from a different route um, and um, it, it came via, via um, um, G. Moore at Cambridge. Um, I think, I think um, Keynes's re re rebellion um, against, against, um, uh, Adam, uh, against classical economics was Ricardo. He said Ricardo was the big wrong turning in his view. Why exactly Ricardo was the wrong turning um, I don't know, um, because the scarcity perspective, which Keynes really abandoned implicitly um, in, in his economics as, as, as a universal condition, um, was there in Smith, um, and, and Ricardo hardened it. Um, the, the bit of Malthus he liked was Malthus's short-termism in, in that debate with Ricardo. Um, uh, I, I, I think he, I, I, I think he, his theory, um, Keynes's own theories of population fluctuated a lot. Broadly, that's that's my answer. Yeah. yeah back uh, back there, and uh, after that, right over there. Uh, it, well, it seems to me there's a call from at least one of you to recontextualize, uh, deobjectify. Uh, and despecialize the discipline of economics, uh, which has become somewhat fetishistic, maybe, and pseudoscientific in its modern forms. Um, my question is, to what end this sort of criticism? Uh, I can think of two kind of general directions. Um, is there more meta-theorizing to be done in a manner that integrates economics with moral theory or aesthetics or any of the other branches of philosophy, or is what we need less um, meta-theorizing and more sort of modesty? And this makes me think of a thinker like Oakeshott, who says we have these different spheres of academic specialisms, of socialism, of um, uh, let's say politics and economics, and the objective is to make these spheres, to understand that they're incommensurable, and not to try and join them together. And maybe the same point could be made of culture in saying that we have different conceptions of what the individual is and how they come to be in a society. 
that that is a really difficult question to address. I think uh, this is not a direct um, reply to you, but one of the things that Smith is quite clear about, as is David Hume, actually, who actually plays a part in this uh, Scottish story of the, uh, of the making of economics theory, um, is that each age should produce a philosophy for itself and itself alone. Um, it's a very sceptical notion, and they are both sceptical thinkers. Um, um, and that, um, that is a, a view of philosophy um, which has built into it the notion that when philosophies get displaced over time, they become the source of superstition. And when you get superstition, you get priests. And you are into an enlightened world uh, in which the source of corruption lies in priestcraft of different sorts. Um, but that does not address your question of, 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 of how then should economic activity be taught. Because, and it's difficult to answer because um, you, you might say exactly the same thing, um, let's say about psychology. How, 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 how uh, um, uh, um, the, the rule that you are um, thinking about is actually a rule which says that we should theorize about human, human behavior in general. Um, and, that, um, and that any attempt to privilege out of the study of different aspects of human behavior uh, is going to lead to some form of distortion. Well, I think what one has to say is that that is right. It, it, it is. But that is what thought is about. Um, a science of man is an, is an unmanageable goal now. Um, um, th um, the, the making of science of any sort is going, um, is going to lead to distortions which are caused by the, the sort of perspective that is taken on that, uh, on that science, which will automatically, like any perspective, obscure what lies out of your, your, uh, the, the scientist's uh, um, uh, 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 um, sphere of vision. Um, and so there is no answer, uh, in my view, uh, uh, to the problem you're raising, except to say that um, um, educated, um, educated scientists in any branch will and actually do, for goodness sake, in, uh, uh, an awful lot, in, well certainly in, in my experience, they do try and make themselves familiar with at least the sort of things um, that, that, that are going on. There's no, there's no, in other words, there's no absolute recipe for what you're dealing with. What you're, de what you're talking about are the problems that science has built into it in any form. And they're ones which only decent human skepticism and common sense uh, can hope to circumnavigate. Could I, could I add to that? Skepticism is, is a good, good, good um, word on which to end. Um, yes, I, I think economics ought to be much more modest. Uh, um, I don't think its achievements have, have, have outdistanced that of other, other um, uh, uh, branches of, of, of study. I mean, people say, well, of course they have. Look, look, I mean, um, um, had, had, um, had uh, we um, uh, not had economics, um, we would still be poor. 
um, the world uh, would be poor. Um, uh, in fact, s some uh, studies have shown um, this is one of the fascinating bits in Hardrung um, Chang's recent book. You know, I don't know if you've read 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Economics. So sort of negative correlation between the number of economists in a country and its rate of economic growth. <laughs> I mean, um, so, but, 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 but maybe that's a debating point. But, but the point is that um, well, there are achievements of economic in of, of economics, and I think they've uh, sort of made the world. I mean, on, I think on the whole, um, free trade um, is a product of thought as well as. Um, circumstance and that thought's been in economics. But if you say, well look, these are the achievements of economics to have speeded up the rate of growth in the world which may or may not be true um, what about the achievements of political theory? We're a much more peaceful world than we were a thousand years ago and you know, there have been a lot of contributors to that. I mean, starting with Aristotle and Plato and all the great political theories, Locke in particular, our government is governments are much less less um, uh, uh, savage in, in the way they treat their subjects. And that's not just because the merchant class came along and you know they couldn't treat them in quite the same way as they treated the peasants. It was also because there was a softening of, of forms of rule which, which owed a great deal um, to political philosophy. So uh, economics um, claims it's, 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 it, um, it, it should be uh, privileged, as you said, because it's hard, it's, it's hard in some way um, that, um, that the others aren't. And in some, uh, some limited uh, respects, that's true. But once you introduce uncertainty as a general condition of existence, economics loses its privileged place. People do not have perfect information about the future in the way. Um, e e economic life takes place in real time. Um, not, not in the form of, 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 of completed transactions of equilibrium models. So once you actually um, sort of take that into account, then I, don't, I think the case for privileging economics is, is very weak, and they should be a lot more modest uh, and take a lot more responsibility for things that have gone wrong. Um, um, Depressions and recessions are the economic equivalents of wars. And if political thought um, should bear responsibility for those disasters, then economists should be prepared to take some responsibility for the economic disasters that uh, occur from time to time. So we'll take, we'll take a few more questions, but um, uh, after, th after the talk, the, um, the authors will sign, sign books um, uh, here, so you can purchase the books out front, but return, uh, re return here. Hi there, thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, I just wanted to hear, up here, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, uh, Smith's famous line, uh, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. Now, for me, this has become one of the most profound statements in economics, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. It's, it is. I mean, we, we, um, uh, the interpretation of what Smith, what is meant by that is very interesting. The notion of market in Smith's writing is very elusive. When Smith first starts writing, about um, economics uh, as a branch of jurisprudence and the arts of government, actually. I, um, he talks of bon marché, 
the reg uh, um, uh, which is in fact the provision of, of goods, as you know, as, as, as cheaply as possible. And, but the interesting thing is that the notion of the market having the extent to which we think of a market, whether how far that is built into Smith's thinking is a very interesting question, and it's one that would well, um, someone really ought to do um, some work on it. It's an extremely interesting question, because there's a case for saying that, the, that when Smith talks about markets outside the books one and two of the, of the Wealth of Nations, he uses the term much more loosely as it applies to local markets. Um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, 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 in other words, the, the local post-feudal market or quasi-feudal market. Now, um, is he then saying that the local quasi-feudal market is a metaphor for um, the market as it, we have come to know it? And if so, what sort of metaphor is it? Well, that is left very vague. As it, and it brings us back to what Robert was talking about a minute ago, um, the notion that um, uh, we, we, talk, we, we talk about the economy um, and government as though we're talking about the household. Now, um, uh, um, something is happening to the language in that. And the question is how precise is this movement in the language. Um, and I, th I don't know the answer to that, except that I do not believe that there is a strict language of the market built into the wealth of nations. I believe that the term has got a strong metaphorical and rhetorical appeal. Um, and I would very much like to know, perhaps you do, um, when the notion of market is tightened up. I mean, it may well be with Ricardo, actually. Mm. But something, but, but um, the notion that we, uh, uh, and, um, and if this line, uh, if this line of thinking holds, I think that what one can say is that Smith's thinking about the market has got a level of poetry in it. It's based on what is familiar in the classic um, Smithian way, and that is what is local. Um, and but nevertheless, it is holding out larger prospects. Uh, which has got everything to do with the distribution of resources. But as I say, that's that's a very incomplete answer. And, I mean, you probably know much more about this than me. Uh, but it's a, it's a ter I think it's a terrific problem, actually, yeah, in the um, history of economics. I, I, I'd just like to add one thing to that. Obviously, it's a chicken and egg problem, in a way. I mean, mm. you know, division of labor limited by the extent of market, <laughs> the extent of market limited mm. by lack of division of labor. Mm. So, so, so really, I think the way Smith escapes from it, in, in my interpretation, is you have, so, have to have some exogenous source of growth, which actually then yeah. creates a sufficient amount of market for the division of labor to, mm. to get going. And that is sort of something like a merchant class and some accumulation of stock, which actually um, uh, 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 produces um, enough of a market. Um, to, to, to get the division of labor going. So the division of labor is not the source of economic growth. I mean, I think the two things go together, accumulation of capital and division of labor, and in some way, which isn't entirely clearly explained in my view, but I'm not sure anyone's done much better, um, that gets the growth process going. You have a question back there? Um, yes, hello, good evening. Um, I came across this line recently, which I, I was just struck me in terms of its um, 
remarkable sort of piercing observation that it made. It's from Adam Smith, and he said, um, and I quote, with the greater part of rich people, um, the greater part of rich people, the chief enjoyment of riches consists in the parade of riches, which in their eye is never so complete as when they appear to possess those decisive marks of opulence which nobody can possess but themselves. Now, um, do you think we are just permanently doomed to kind of oscillate between boom and bust because of our rapacious nature? Or do you think that the Keynesians are really going to be in the ascendant for some time? Well, I think that's also relative, isn't it? Relative wealth. I mean, it's, it, it, as I, I heard that, it, it's something, it's wealth of status, is it? And I mean, once, once um, you, 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 you have relative, uh, relative, um, uh, um, uh, uh, relative um, uh, comparison of incomes, then it seems to me that wants become almost insatiable because the grass is always greener somewhere else. And that's, I think, one of the big obstacles to the utopian uh, idea that um, growth will come to an end, because if it were a question of simply of satisfying um, basic needs, or sort of even comfortable, um, some standard of comfort, then you could imagine it'll slow down and and, and grind to a halt, jugger to a halt. But if you're always comparing your position with someone else's, um, and, 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 and because someone um, has more than you, um, you want that too. I mean, economists have written very interestingly about this in terms of positional goods. Um, and, 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 and Thorsten Veblen also was brilliant on, on, on wealth as simply a status symbol. Status symbols are very, very important. Do you actually um, want your, 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 your I don't know, um, uh, wonderful 150,000 um, uh, pound car um, uh, in order because you enjoy driving that sort of car for its own sake, or is it because it obviously puts you in a different league from your um, someone else who only has a 50,000 pound car or a 30,000 pound car? I think that that's all noticed by Smith as well, of course. Well, just to add one thing, there is an extremely um, sharp and depressing comment in the theory of moral sentiments in which Smith says that um, uh, greed, status, and all the rest of it is actually another invisible hand appearing from nowhere. Um, it actually works for the long-term good of society. We for, because he will give us an explanation of why we admire people for their wealth, uh, for their status, for their power. Um, and the reasons are entirely disgusting. Um, they, are, they present human beings as creeps um, who um, simply have um, a, a, an acquired disposition, which Smith explains brilliantly, uh, to do that sort of thing. Uh, but he said, again, the invisible hand does funny things because without that capacity, um, social deference, a political obedience would be impossible. And this is the price one pays for civilization. And I think, though this is an interpretation on my part, I'm, I wouldn't dream of legislating for this, I think Smith is actually under no illusions that most of us are actually creeps. 
Um, we do what is fashionable. We take our values um, from, um, uh, 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 from the world in which we find ourselves. Um, uh, we, we spend our time competing for status and power with other people. Um, but nevertheless, what he does show is that actually, on a, a reasonable assumption, it isn't actually impossible for people to build a moral life in which the only person they wish to impress is themselves and to live with themselves. And that's one of the most powerful bits of Smithian ethics, to say uh, 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 that, that, that the good people are basically people who are prepared not simply to be judged by others and to take their values from others, as we all do for an awful lot of time, but actually uh, have the capacity to look inwards, um, away from the, the hubbub of, 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 of competitive life, and ask how would they judge themselves. And the, some of the most interesting and luminous moral theory, which is, as I say, I think it's absolutely integral to understanding how Smith thinks a market can work beneficently, is that it actually that there is it that it really is possible for some people and perhaps more and more as you get a generation get, get generational changes to live with self-respect uh, able to respect themselves as 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 as, as well as other people. Um, but the, the quotation you gave is absolutely super one. It's a, a, a real classic. So uh, last last question. I, I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about. Um, your thoughts about ec uh, economics for our grandchildren, because that seems you seem to be outlining a utopian vision from Keynes there, which, um, on the face of some of the other things you said, would be just, would be naive and certainly more influenced by, say, Condorcet than Malthus. And I was just wondering how you felt he came to believe in that. So just to, just to pick up on that as well. So your your recent. Um, statement about human nature would make it seem that the end of scarcity, at least perceived scarcity, is well, is more than 100 years away um, if, if, you know, there these issues of status and uh, relative, yeah. uh, relative wealth are important. Well, that's, that's the big problem. That's the big problem with economic possibilities for our grandchildren. We've grown at the rate which Keynes predicted in 1930. We're about four to eight, we're about five times, six times um, richer than we were, that is in the developed world, but he thought that our hours of work would come down and we'd take, we'd, we'd trade, we'd trade consumption for leisure. And we do, we have up to a point, but then the, the, the relations become very, very complicated between consumption and leisure, and we haven't uh, traded, I mean, we're still addicted to consumption, um, and, and that keeps the growth engine going. Uh, now, um, um, uh, Okay, that's, that, that's a problem. I mean, one of the reasons for that, you, there are lots of institutional reasons, but if you just take narrow, narrow bits of the subject, why haven't hours of work come down? He thought you could actually get our, um, um, our, our, our level of output and goods and services working much, much less. Which country actually is closest to Keynes in that respect in, 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 in the developed world? The Netherlands. Now, the Netherlands, they work about half, half the, the, the hours per year that the Americans do, just over half, actually. But their standard of living, as measured by GDP per capita, is very, very similar. 
British and, and Americans are the workaholics in this um, sort of um, galere of uh, developed countries, and, and the Europeans on the whole um, seem to enjoy life more, or enjoy their leisure more. So, th but what causes that? It's not just, I think, that um, um, they have a, a, a healthier attitude to these things. It's also the, the way the trade unions work, the way the laws work. In France, there was legislation passed limiting the working week to 35 hours. So, or you can, the state can do something about this um, to make it less utopian. But there are certain, and then there's also, of course, advertising, the immense immense um, power of advertising to stimulate wants. There's also the thought that new wants are created by the very process of aff by, by affluence itself, which weren't there. And, and so there's a lot behind the consumption machine, which means that people then go on working to satisfy um, uh, wants, which may be delusory in terms of the happiness it, it, it brings them, and delusory also in terms of, of making for an agreeable, sensible, and, and good life. And we know that. We know we're sacrificing lots of things along the way, but somehow we can't get off. Some people do get off. And, 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 and they're brave and, 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 and their spirit, uh, spirit, uh, spirits we admire. But on the whole, um, uh, Keynes hasn't got there. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm joint authoring a book um, uh, um, called um, uh, How Much is Enough? The Economics of the Good Life. And uh, that attempts to grapple with exactly the, the problem you raise. Well, uh, I'm sure you'd uh, like to join me to thank uh, Lord Skidelsky for his <laughs> telephone.